Dons fans, and welcome to our round eight preview of Don the Stat. Two losses in five days, and the Dons have slipped to four and three and sit outside the eight on percentage with the power to come this Sunday at the Adelaide Oval. I'm Jonathan Walsh, and to chat through it all, I'm joined by my co-host Ian Hume. Humey, how's things, mate? Uh, mate, things are flat out, but look, again, great to sit down tonight and chat again about the Bobbins. Uh, another big challenge in a cavalcade of big challenges, but excited to test ourselves against the best sides. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, mate. This is a, an interesting little run, isn't it? We obviously had you know three sort of premiership favourites in three weeks with the the D's, the Pies, and and the Cats, and and now we have the challenge of playing two interstate games in a row, and what will be three and four weeks by the time we uh, we go over to Perth and play West Coast in a month's time. So it's uh, yeah, it, it is another interesting challenge, but. I think in the past where I've been quite daunted of these kind of challenges, I, I now get quite excited to see how we we step up and and how we handle them. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but yeah, otherwise going well, mate. Would have um, obviously liked another win or two on the board over over the the last couple of or the, the sort of last week or two. But uh, besides that, uh, mate, going well. Just re- like you, really flat out and busy with work. That's it. Well, look, before we get into tonight, just want to. Give a shout out to our new patrons, uh, David Vivian, Matthew Hardy, John Anderson, and Wynux. Uh, Also, thanks to Philip Crooks for his great review on Apple Podcasts. And finally, thanks to Gronk for your email about how you're enjoying the show. Uh, We really appreciate all the feedback and support we get uh, for a variety of methods. If if email is your preferred method of contact, you can send us an email at donthestat, or one word, at gmail.com. Well, look, let's start looking at the Geelong game. And I think despite the obvious issues that we will get to, there was actually a lot of positives to come out of that match. Uh, So firstly, we'll start by looking at what our key focuses were. And the first was to address the stoppage clearance, which from what we looked at was the key metric that was driving Geelong's success in their wins. uh, And we were unable to do that. The Cats won stoppage 31-19. Seven of their goals came from stoppages, whereas Essen has only been conceding less than four a game from that source to this point of the year. Uh, Dangerfield had five stoppage clearances. Myers and Baroon had three apiece. And then eight other Geelong players had two each. So only four Bombers players had multiple stoppage clearances uh, in the game. So you can see that, again, not only did they have a dominance at stoppage, but they had a wide variety of players who could dominate from stoppage. And, and that caused us a lot of problems. Yeah, they, they won clearance and then they scored from it, didn't they? They, they scored three goals from centre clearances and three goals from four fifty stoppages for the game. Two of those centre clearance goals came in the first quarter, along with one of their forward 50 stoppage goals. So, yeah, three of their their first quarter goals came that way where they really got a, a jump on us. And then their third centre clearance goal came in the second quarter. So we, we kind of rectified it after half time. But but as we know, ultimately, a lot of the, the damage was done. We, we outscored them for the game, funnily enough, from the centre bounce, three goals, three to three goals, one. But, yeah, as I mentioned, by... By quarter time, uh, you know, we, we weren't completely out of the game, but it was going to be a massive challenge, wasn't it, to, to be able to get back, and and that's the way it played out. Yeah, and obviously, again, going into the game, another one of those massive challenges was dealing with Cameron and Hawkins, and we we wanted the the lineup the way it started with Rids on Cameron and, and Brandon Zerk Thatcher on, on Hawkins, uh, but the key focus was to rely on the mids to deny them good entries, and... Look, I think one of the pleasing things about the fandom so far since the Geelong game is that I haven't really heard anyone blaming uh, Zerk Thatcher for having so many goals kicked on him by Hawkins. The quality of delivery that Hawkins was getting meant that 
uh, Zerk Thatcher had really no chance, especially considering the the weight and experience gulf between the two players. Um, I'm not sure if you put Silvani or Fletcher or Scarlett on Hawkins with the way he was getting the ball delivered to him. Uh, I don't think any of them would be able to perform much better than what Zerk Thatcher did. Yeah, not now the way umpires um, adjudicate front-on contact and holding free kicks. I don't think Silvani would have stood much of a chance um, under the the modern rules. He, he couldn't get away with a lot of the tricks that he used to deploy. But, yeah, I look, I, I thought he, he did the best that he could under a, a difficult circumstance for a player who's still, you know, finding his feet in, in his AFL career. The only little bit of uh, a feedback or or. Uh, part of the game that I thought he he let himself down a little bit was he just watched Hawkins a little bit too much instead of the ball and and I think in doing that he he robbed himself of an opportunity of of playing to his own strengths which really is just his reach and his ability to kind of bend himself into position a, a little bit like Gavin Wangane did he's a very different player of course but uh, you know he's he's he he gave that up because of the way that he he approached Hawkins and, and he was really conscious of of body contact. So, look, you get it. He, he's playing against one of the best key forwards of the modern era and and, and Zerk Thatcher's just finding his way. But, uh, yeah, it sort of is what it is. But at halftime or after halftime, I should say, we we moved Langford to the wing and, and then he went and played as a spare defender, which I think was a good move. Yeah, Martin did a good job throughout the game, dropping back, but he wasn't really getting into the hole in front of, um, Hawkins, uh, and it was Langford who basically stood right in front of him. Martin had 11 intercept possessions of the game. Langford had five, of which most of those came in the second half. So, uh, yeah, we scored nine goals to six after half time. So from a, a coaching perspective, I'm, I'm glad that we moved, we moved some things around and, and tried to find a way rather than just let the game unfold the way that it was. So I think that's a bit of a tick. The other thing that I liked, mate, not so much just about the defensive matchups or anything, was... In the third quarter, there was a real sense that we were getting ourselves back into the game and that we were going to challenge Geelong. And you could feel it in the crowd. You could hear it in the crowd's noise and and the players could sense it. And that was a real difference for me. I I think, you know, I, I know there's a lot of talk about or comparisons between Essendon this year and last year and, and what how would the game have unfolded last year. But there's this real change in belief, I think, amongst the playing group. And I think the fans are sensing it too. So uh, I, I really like that and, and sort of epitomised by one bit of play where, um, which I shared earlier in the week, where uh, Caldwell turned the ball over at half forward and, and the ball just hung a little bit from hind and and our players just instantly um, went back onto to defence to, to defend transition and, and hind actually ended up intercepting in the back half. So we ran from half forward to half back to intercept and, and we were able to move the other way. So yeah, real real change in that regard I felt, which was uh which is quite nice. Yeah, I agree. I I was only watching on TV, but you know, for, for being five goals down for most of the game, you you never felt like you were out of the game. And the way in which we were able to score meant that, you know, it was possible we could put on multiple goals in a rush and make it more of a game of it. And I think we'll talk about it a bit later. It, was, it almost really just came down to some skill errors by the Bombers that gave uh, Geelong some steadiers and, and that sort of negated any ability to uh, halt the momentum and, and bring it back to towards parity. I think the next point we were going to talk about was using center field at center bounce to negate danger field and restrict his kicking efficiency. Um 
look, despite the fact that it was against us, it was really impressive watching Dangerfield's game on, on Sunday. I think he's probably playing as well as he ever has. And I think Geelong really seemed to be using him very well, very smartly. They've, even though he's, you know, he's older, he's, he's probably not as fitter, as explosive as he as he was. They they've built their game around allowing him to perform at a high level for for short bursts and making the most of that. So even you know, it seemed like he was everywhere in, in quarter one, but he only attended four centre bounces in that first quarter. But from those four, he won three of those. He went at over seventy percent disposal efficiency for the game as well. So he he did the things he needed to do, even though I think for Geelong, other than their sub, he was he spent the least amount of time on the ground, but he was arguably the most influential player, even more than Hawkins, because Hawkins doesn't kick those goals if, if Dangerfield's not uh bursting from packs and, and delivering it, the ball to him. Uh on the center field is really weird how he seemed to be strangely absent from the center bounces for most of the first quarter. He only tended three of nine. And we lost center clearance six two in that opening quarter. And then for the rest of the game, Setterfield attended 77% of the center bounces. We won those 17-9. Now, correlation doesn't equal causation, but there's, there does seem to be a bit of a link there. And uh, Dangerfield only got two more center clearances uh, for the game after that first quarter. So he wasn't as effective after that first quarter, but again, a lot of the damage being done there. Yeah, he he was incredible, mate. You, you're right. He's, he's in as good a form as he's ever been, I, I think, and... Yeah, despite it being against us, two games in a row, right? Like we got to watch Nick Dacos on Anzac Day and, and then we got to watch Dangerfield at, at his best on, on Sunday. And, you know, from a pure football fan's perspective, it's it's good to see. He had 15 inside 50s for the game. There's been 15 instances in 2023 where a player has had 10 or more inside 50s and no one has had more than 12. So, uh, you know, he... He was incredible and, and did something that that no one else has been able to do this year in terms of getting the ball inside fifty that many times. I, I was I said it in the preview. I'm, I'm still not completely sure where Geelong are at. They they seem to improve last year off the back of some of their lesser likes really stepping up and, and playing better footy. You know, guys like De Koning had a breakout year down back. Um, uh, you know, Guthrie, Zach Guthrie, that is, or both Guthries for that matter, you know, stepped up and improved their game. Atkins had a good year. Uh, you know, a, a number of others um, sort of stepped up and improved their games, whereas this year they seem to be winning a lot more off star power. Now, these guys are, are genuine stars of the competition, so that that might still continue to hold them in, into good stead, but it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, if they can keep them fit, and, and if they don't, what happens to them. If you look at the coaches' votes, Hawkins got the full 10, Dangerfield got eight, Stringer got six for us. Then it was Stewart and Blitzars who, who also got votes for them. And Jeremy Cameron didn't get a vote and had 20 disposals and kicked three goals. So yeah, we just got more than anything, you know, skill errors, mistakes, rotations, all of those kind of things. We just com- got completely overwhelmed by star power and, and you know, we're just not at that level yet. Yeah. And speaking of midfield rotations, again, there's something we've, we've banged on about for over a year and uh, we've talked of, about multiple occasions this year about rotating more. And uh, we actually had more players rotate through the center bounces than any other game this year. But you actually messaged me pretty early on uh, that you thought we're actually rotating too much, which given what we've been saying, you know, is a bit of a turnaround. What did you mean by that? Yeah, it's a little bit ironic, isn't it? But we started Stringer in the midfield and 
he didn't initially in the first quarter at least he didn't play as a midfielder he he did what he we've seen him do in previous years where once the center bounce was done he ran forward and he handed over to Setterfield who who as you mentioned started outside of the center bounce uh Merritt as we thought he might got early attention from Atkins who sort of ran around with him a little bit and then so Merritt was running forward as well to try and shake that you know it wasn't a tag but that that defensive minus uh you know minder in Atkins and I just thought, you know, our midfield mix had been pretty settled and simple throughout the season. And I just wonder whether we got a little bit too clever. There was a little bit too much going on and we just lost some balance. Uh, we'll talk about Port later, but it'll be interesting to see how we adjust against them because they're a team who, like Geelong, they don't have quite have the brute strength and size. You know, Geelong had the the advantage of being able to put the coning in the ruck and then play Blitzars as a midfielder whilst you also had someone like Dangerfield in there. So really, really big, strong guys. But um, but yeah, I just thought we we maybe overcomplicated it a little bit. It, it's one thing to rotate, but we were so, we sort of had rotations inside rotations. It, it wasn't just, um, you know, midfielders rotating off the bench and, um, and swapping over. We had, you know, sort of forwards going to the midfield, midfielders going to the forward line and then, yeah, lots going on, and I just thought we lost our way a little bit. And and by the time we settled, you know, they were five or six goals ahead. Yeah. Shields, another one that attended a lot less than he has in the past, and it was pleasing to see that he can also be effective in other roles other than being a centre-bounce midfielder. So, again, another string to the bow that you can you can shuffle the magnets on the whiteboard and, and come up with a successful game plan. But my impression the change of approach. I think it's as much a player management issue as anything. We didn't want to burn out key midfielders, especially around the awkward breaks around Anzac day. Um, and rather than, you know, dropping players, uh, dropping quality players from for your side to make sure that they don't get burnt out. You rotate them a bit more through, through that midfield. Um, I expect they'll go to a more limited rotation with the more regular break heading into port. Um, but I also think stringers stringers form from the Geelong game probably does raise questions about what the best mix going forward is going to be. I mean, how can you deny him midfield time after what he did? Yeah, it's a, it's a fair point. I, I don't know, obviously don't know how they'll, they'll manage it this week, but I think from a player management perspective, it's something that we also need to be mindful of when it comes to Jake Stringer, doesn't it? Because, you know, we, we know that too much of that, that midfield effort can, can have an impact on his ability to recover and, and also play a Stringer game. So, um, yeah, it's a real watch this space. It's a real curious one going into this work. Yeah. Well, look, we'll just touch on a couple of other points. Firstly, as it was a loss, the things that went wrong and uh, the slow start. So, are they becoming a pattern? It, it does seem to be an area that is happened more than once this season. What's the concern there? Yeah, we're we're 14th on the first quarter ladder. If you you look at wins and losses just a quarter time, we've won three of seven with a percentage of 73%, which you know, would suggest there's a problem, but we'd won our two first quarters before that against two very good teams in Melbourne and Collingwood. The week before that, we lost against the Giants, but we did kick two goals eight in that quarter to four goals straight. So, you know, we had 10 scoring shots to four, so we probably should have won that one. And then it was the week before that the Saints got the real jump on us. So I don't think it's a pattern. We've had two really poor ones against St Kilda and against um, Geelong, but we also had two really good ones against really good teams in in Melbourne and Collingwood. So it's inconsistent, but I think there are lots of things in our game that are inconsistent at the moment. 
Yeah, and speaking of inconsistency, I think the skill errors, we touched on it a little bit before, but arguably uh, Essendon hands you along four or five goals through basic skill errors. There were a couple of kicks uh, in the back line that ended up in the hands of Geelong players. And then I think the one that people remember a lot was Nick Martin running out of the back line and then turning around and handballing it to a, a Geelong player. And I think despite the early Geelong dominance, that almost ended up being one of the key differences in the match. And every time Essendon seemed to have some momentum and and be building a challenge, a skill error would give Geelong an easy goal and that would allow them to settle and and maintain their lead. Yeah, I I think we're we're still missing that lead up marking forward who you can kick to with confidence uh, and and know that they're going to bring the ball to ground. And, And I... I do feel a little bit for our halfbacks and midfielders at times that when they're coming out of a defensive 50 and they look up and, you know, they've got Archie Perkins or, you know, in weeks gone by, Menzi and, and the like to kick to. Wiedemann, for all the good that he did, and we'll touch on him in a second, he's not the type that that consistently gets up the ground and, and provides a, a marking outlet like Peter Wright could do for us last year. So I, I don't think it's just about skill errors. I just think we're... You know, there's still it's just a part of our game that 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 we don't have a real answer to at the moment. But it's also what really good teams do to you, isn't it? You know, they they raise pressure to a level where they create both forced and unforced errors. And and I guess for for young players in particular, when they're looking up and not seeing a Peter right there to kick to, they they're second guessing themselves. So, you know, Geelong had nine game nine players out there with 150 games of experience or more, and we only had the three. And they averaged 56 more games per player than we did. So, you know, they, they've they been working as a group a lot longer than we have. And, you know, guys like Martin and, and Massimo, you know, they're going to make mistakes and, and they're going to make a lot more of them and, and we just have to accept it. Unfortunately, we also saw it from some more experienced players as well, which we'd, we'd like to hope that they get better um, or that they are better than that. But, yeah, we're, we're making it harder on ourselves than it needs to be, that's for sure. But I don't, I don't think it's a lack of capabilities. I think it's just a lack of of experience in some cases and then and then just a little bit of system and, and personnel in other cases. Yeah. Well look before we move off the Geelong game, we'll just touch on a couple of things that went right. And we've we've talked about these players already, but the first for me is the performance of, of Stringer and, and Wiedemann. They've both played outstanding games in losses. Yeah, I, I think for me that I mean Wiedemann's only been here for, you know, this season. Stringer's been but I think I think I read earlier in the week that that this week he'll equal games played uh, for Essendon and, uh, as he did at, at the Western Bulldogs. So yeah, I think for mine, it, it, for both of them, it's the best game they've played for Essendon. Um, Stringer, his most complete game, and uh, and Wiedemann, obviously, um, you know, we saw him clunk it, we saw him hit the scoreboard, um, and and he was pretty dynamic uh, in the forward line. He sort of won the ball at ground level and and in the air. So yeah, I, I liked what I saw at both of them. Um, yeah, what did you think? Uh, I, I agree with you on Stringer, and I, I mentioned earlier Stringer being a midfield threat again adds another uh, string to the bow of the side. And as you pointed out on Twitter, no other player this year has had more than 10 clearances and four goals in a game. So it was an absolute, you know, unicorn game from from a player. Um, I don't think we should be expecting that every week, but again, as, as you saw, say, managing him and, and knowing when the right time to pull the, the Stringer trigger is and, and putting him in the midfield to have that impact. Um, I think it's going to be a really important thing going forward for the rest of this year. 
Um, and now Wiedemann's played two quality games in a row against two quality sides. Uh, plenty of concerns about whether he'd make it, but I think we're all a lot more confident that there's something there to work with, especially when we eventually get right back and he can and Wiedemann can be that second forward, although maybe he prefers to be the, the key. And so time's going to tell. Obviously, we won't get Peter right back to the end of this season, if at all. Uh, so it'll be a while before we see how they work together, but encouraging signs there. Uh, the other thing that was pleasing was that our full ground defence held up. Uh, so when we did eventually get the ball into our forward line, uh, we weren't getting cut apart from half back. When we had time to set up a defence, Geelong found it difficult to score. They could only source two goals from defensive 50 for the game, whereas the Bombers were able to score five from that zone. Yeah, it did. It looked pretty good at times, uh, particularly after half time, uh, as we spoke about when Langford, you know, changed his role and, and went and played behind the ball. We did only go inside 50, 47 times though. So we didn't give them a heap of chances to to exit our forward 50 and, and go down the other end. Uh, we're almost a third of the way through the season now, mate. We're, we're four and three with a percentage of 111.1. This time last year, we were one and six with a percentage of 72.3. So, you know, that that's a pretty big improvement. I know there's been a lot of talk about, you know, soft draw or, or, or whatnot. We've played the team's that are currently, so at the end of round seven, that are currently ranked first, second, third, seventh. Uh, sorry, this is last year. So as of round seven last year, we played the teams that were ranked first, second, third, seventh, eighth, tenth, and twelfth. So, you know, we we had a pretty rough draw last year and had to play some really good sides and, and we didn't really get the opportunity to get some, you know, in inverted commas, cheap wins. But this year we've played the teams that are also ranked first, second, and third, and seventh. And then 12th, 13th, and 17th. So, so really the only difference in fixture difficulty is we've got to play 17th instead of 8th and 13th instead of 10th. So, you know, there's been some good improvement there. I think, you know, playing the Hawks in round one and, and getting a, a, a win under our belt early changes a lot of things in terms of confidence versus playing, you know, Geelong, who, who went on to win the flag. But, you know, we still played you know, four teams in the top seven, including the top three on the ladder and and our improvement both in terms of wins and percentage is stark. But yeah, mate, you, you spoke about goals from transition and improvement. Uh, you put some analysis out on Twitter earlier this week in regards to score sources. Do you want to talk us through that and what it all means? Yeah, so we've been really lucky this year that one of our listeners, Mike Reed, who's also been on the podcast, he's helped us uh, gain a lot of access to data that helps us understand what's happening in games. And, and one of the things that he's allowed us to track is scores both for and against where they've come from in terms of location and source of the chain. Now, uh, listeners may have heard us use the term chain or people in the media use chain. I just want to explain what that is so it's clear for people. So a chain is the link of possessions from a particular point that leads to a score. And so these these chains start from either a centre bounce, a stoppage, which is a ball up or throw in, a turnover or a kick in. And then the chain continues until there's either a score or one of the other starting points occurs. So uh, if a stoppage if, if a chain leads to a stoppage, then the next chain starts from that stoppage. So that's how we we manage and check scores. And it really tells you a lot about how teams are trying to trying to play the game and what what's doing damage to them. Now, again, one of the things that's been constantly referred to in regards to Essendon is, is scores from back 50, both the fact that we're effective at scoring from there and that we have a weakness in allowing full ground transition. And it's something that's that's been talked about a lot um, and one of our big weaknesses from last year. 
So it's really interesting to see the score sources. Now, I'm not going to go through all the specific numbers because we've, we don't want to be here for uh, half an hour with me going through that, but I will post a link to that data so you listeners can have a look at that um, and, and see what we're looking at when we talk about this. But if you think about the, there's five main areas of the ground. If you, if you separate it into quadrants, so defensive 50, forward 50, that you split the middle into defensive center and forward center. Then you also have scores from the center circle, so from center bounce. Big thing for me is that we've increased our score sources in four of the five areas of the ground. So center circle, defensive 50, defensive center, and forward center. We've all seen an increase in scores sourced from those locations. It's only dropped from inside the forward 50, so we're generating less uh, scores that start from chains that begin in our, inside our forward 50. But I think that has a lot to do with with more of how we've set up. We're much more prepared to let teams move the ball, but through pressure in our forward 50, we allow them to take the short wide kick. We'd be really good at denying teams the uh, center square. What that allows then is we can then set up our defense and find other options to score. And the big improvement in where our scores are sourced from is from defensive 50. Now, a lot of people have spoken about that being a strength investment in that run and gun style. But in, in this sense, it, it's coming from structure. It's coming from Essendon generating turnover in their back 50 um, so that they can then move the ball forward and score. And, and that comes down to a real improvement in structure. In terms of scores against, uh, across pretty much all the areas of the ground, we've also tightened. So there's less scores coming from each area of the ground. Uh, overall, teams are scoring twice a game less than they were against Essendon last year, whereas we've improved our scores by uh, four scores a game um, this year. And again, that that probably leads us to why the performance has improved so far in 2023. So there's a lot to take in there. Um, hopefully people are still listening after I, I got through that. But yeah, really interesting. And it's something we'll be tracking throughout the rest of the year. Yeah, it's interesting, mate. I, I think Good job and, and well explained. It's really data heavy, so it's always hard to do that without visuals to support it. But I think the key thing there is that, you know, almost every area of our game in terms of being able to score has improved and, and almost every area of our game in terms of restricting scores has improved. And we we spoke about this and chose to talk about it this week after we've just conceded 137 points because we, you know, we could have done it last year when, uh, sorry, last week after Anzac Day when our percentage was looking a lot better. Uh, you know, we hadn't conceded 100 points yet for the season. It would have been all rosy uh, and and everything would have looked amazing. Uh, you know, the reality is that that we were scored heavily against uh, by Geelong and, and that was disappointing. But what it does do is you put that into the mix and it balances out, you know, some of the things that we saw against Hawthorne and the like where we were able to really dominate those games. So I think um, it was a good time to review it. And yeah, I think the message there is that there's a lot of things that are improving and there's a lot of things that still need to improve. So uh, yeah, I think that's consistent with the the message of inconsistency that we've heard from Brad Scott, isn't it? Yeah. Did anything catch your eye in the media this week? Yeah. One that caught my attention, mate. I, I watched uh, Cal Toomey. Uh, people would be familiar with his work on afl.com.au and, and he's doing a, a show and, and podcast called Gettable, which is talking about uh, trade and, and draft strategies and, and list management, which, uh, you know, it, not everyone's cup of tea, but I, I quite enjoy it. Uh, he did an interview with Winston Rouse uh, this week, who is otherwise known as Darcy Parrish's manager at Phoenix Management Group. That's uh, the management group that was was previously Ricky Nixon's and, and got bought out by our very own Scotty Lucas. 
there are a couple of takeaways, mate, for me. Firstly, it was mentioned both by Cal Toomey and by Winston that Darcy is pretty relaxed about the whole situation. He's just focused on his footy. Uh, and, you know, I think that's a good thing um, that, that he's pretty chilled out about it. Uh, he, he's, it was mentioned that he's got a really good relationship with Brad Scott and how important stability and, and those relationships will be in his decisions. So I think, you know, that holds us in good stead in, in regards to keeping him. He's playing really, really good footy. And, and if he gets on well with the coach, I think that is obviously going to help as well. The other point that that Kel made, uh, and I thought it was a very good one, is that Darcy Parrish makes Zach Merritt a better footballer and Zach Merritt makes Darcy Parrish a better footballer and together they make Essendon better. And yeah, I, as I said, I completely agree with that. Darcy gets a lot of unfair criticism from people in general, but particularly our, our fans. And it's fine. Everyone's entitled to their own view, of course. But he... He ranks third in the AFL for disposals. You know, we all know he's really good at getting the ball. But more importantly than that, he ranks seventh for contested possession. So he's not just running around racking them up. He's he's actually going to work and winning his own footy and doing it better than most in the AFL. The other thing that he gets knocked on is his kicking. And sure, there are times where it, it could and needs to be better. But it's also a consistent challenge for players that are winning a lot of their own ball. Of those in the top 10 for contested possessions, only two, and we're talking about a Brownlow medalist in, in Lockie Neal and one of the best footballers in the competition in Marcus Bontempelli, have a better disposal efficiency than uh, than Darcy does. And only four of the top 10, so Neal, Bontempelli, Dangerfield, who we just spoke about, who's one of the all-time greats, and, and Stephen Coniglio of a GWS have a better kicking efficiency. And the difference between Coniglio and, and Darcy is very, very, very minimal. So, you know, what what he's doing in terms of how he's using the ball isn't drastically different to, to the other guys that are winning a lot of contested footy. He averages 7.57 score involvements a game. Of those in the top 10 for contested possessions, Petrarca leads with 8.43 a game. So, you know, less than one more a game. Uh, and he's a lot closer to him than Rao, who's at 10th at, at 4.86. So, uh, you know, he his possessions are resulting in us scoring. He's second in the AFL for clearances behind Lockie Neal, who has 2.3 more, who he, who, Darcy has 2.3 more score involvements a game, uh, and he's also 200 meters gained, 200 meters gained a game better. So, you know, he's, he's the number two midfielder for meters gained behind only Petraka. So, when you you balance all of that out against the other contested ball winners and clearance winners, where he ranks really high, he also ranks really really highly for for score involvements, for meters gained, um, and yeah, for clearances as I mentioned. The other thing that that gets thrown around is that he doesn't run both ways. He's 16th in the AFL for defensive half pressure acts. So he's getting back in our defensive 50 and he's applying pressure to, to opposition forwards and midfielders. And yep, sure. We could get a first rounder for him. You know, if he goes as the free agency compensate compensation, or we could try and force a trade and, and maybe get two first rounders or, or some sort of deal, but then we'd have to wait another five or six years and hope that maybe we get another player that's at the standard of Darcy Parish. And whilst we wait for that to happen, we go backwards again before we go forwards. And and who knows what flow-on effect that might have on other players staying or going. But but what it will certainly do is it will lessen the quality of our side. I think people need to stop focusing on what he doesn't do well and start to really focus on what he does do well. And, and that's he wins the ball and he's among the very best in the competition at it. 
that helps us to get territory. It helps us to to generate scores. So I think we just need to appreciate him for what he is, and that is an elite contested midfielder and, and clearance midfielder. Yeah, well said, and I I agree. I I said a couple of weeks ago I think he's having a better year than he's twenty twenty one. I think part of the problem for him is that the twenty twenty one season for him uh, was so good in part because of what had come before where he'd sort of been a bits and pieces player and now he became a, you know, a top 10 Brownlow medal finisher that year. And people are sort of comparing him back to, to 2021. And because the jump isn't as big, uh, maybe they think he's, he's not as valuable as he was, but I think as you sort of pointed out by going through his stats, he's, he's arguably having his best career year so far. Um, and I agree at this point, I'm not letting him go. Um, for anything, I only let him go if he wants to go. I don't think I think we've shown in the past that if you keep players against their will, um, it doesn't really work out for you uh, long term. Um, and look, assuming our form continues at the same level, we're not really going to be in contention for the pointy of the of the draft at this stage. You let him go as a free agency, you know, we we might end up with pick eleven, and for me, that's not my idea of a good deal there. No, not at all. And, and pick 11 is about the zone that we drafted Hobbs at. I think he was pick 13, wasn't he? And, and if you look at the gap in, in quality between Hobbs and Parrish now, and, and you know, the, there's an argument that could be made to say that Parrish, uh, sorry, Hobbs if would step up into Darcy's position if, if he left. Hobbs isn't going to be the player in 2024 that Darcy Parrish is in 2023 and will be in 2024 and 2025 and 2026. Uh, and, and whoever we draft a pick 11 certainly won't be. We're going to have to wait four or five years or or longer and hope to maybe get a player that's anywhere near that quality. So from a from a list management perspective, at a list that's already quite young, we, we need to be doing everything that we can to keep him. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're finally going to get on to talking about Port Adelaide and we'll just start with a few Port Adelaide memories. Now, good memories recently are, are few and far between. Uh, it's been uh, five five years now since Essendon beat Port Adelaide. Um, a couple of moments that really stand out to me, uh, I, I like watching this one quite a lot, uh, Lloyd's bump on Chad Corns, unfortunately it wasn't Kane, uh, back in 2004. And then uh, Francis's great mark uh, over Paddy Ryder in, in 2018 that really uh, is really seared in the memory for me. I think he should have been a, a finalist for mark of the year that year, was robbed a bit. Uh, what stands out for you, Jono? Yeah, I remember our first game against them over in Footy Park in 1997. I, I watched it on telly, but I, I mainly remember it just for being really sad for seeing Gavin Wanganeen not wearing an Essendon jumper. So that was a, a really bitter one. And then the other one that, that instantly stood out to me, mate, was uh, was Michael Long kicking the first goal ever at Docklands in round one in, in 2000 to kick off that season that you know ultimately went on to be uh, a really memorable one. Yeah. Well, look, let's let's start looking at Port Adelaide in more recent times. And, you know, looking at them last year, they, they really underperformed compared to their preseason expectations. They ended up finishing 11th with 10 wins and 12 losses. But, you know, a fair way into the season now, and so we've got a fair idea of how they're performing. They started with a really strong win over the Lions, which was unexpected to a lot of people. I think most people thought the Lions would come out a lot stronger at the start of the season than they did. Um, but then they were belted by the Pies and then comfortably lost to arch rivals Adelaide. So there's a lot of questions about where they were headed, but they've managed to turn their season around. Uh, had a surprise uh, two-point win away to the Swans. And then from there, they've beaten the Dogs, Eagles, and then the Saints last week to head into round eight at 5-2 and sitting fifth on the ladder. 
So if you think about how they're playing compared to last year, there's a fair few similarities. So it, it really shows how uh, AFL footy, you know, is a game which is decided by really small margins. So they're kicking the ball slightly more this year. Their kick to handball ratio is 1.5 compared to 1.3, 4.3 last year. Not a big difference there in terms of how they're trying to play. Um, for centre clearance this year, they rank 13th, and that's the same as positions they were in last year. And uh, again, stoppage clearance for them remains a strength. They were top five last year, and they're in the top five for this year, and that's something we'll be focusing on uh, as we look at how to beat them. And in fact, they've actually dropped off a little bit in intercepts. So they were sixth last year. They had a positive differential. Uh, and this year, they're 11th with a negative differential, although that's really been impacted by their poor efforts in losses. So in their losses, they're minus 9.5 uh, intercepts. Uh, and no other side has a worse differential in losses than Port Adelaide does. In their wins, they've been plus three. So the last few weeks, they've been improving on intercept. They were just dreadful uh, giving the ball away too easily and not being able to get it back themselves in in those losses to Collingwood and Adelaide. Yeah, they're, they're plus 10 in contested ball in, in their wins and then minus 39 in their in their losses. So, you know, contested ball for them goes a long way to determining whether they win or lose. But they've won four in a row uh, and in the last four weeks, they've been the best defensive side in the AFL in terms of uh, points conceded. They've averaged only 66.25 points against per game. They've also come up against some lower scoring teams though. So yeah, they've played the Western Bulldogs who rank 14th for scores four, West Coast who are 15th, and then St Kilda for all the good that they're doing this year. They're not scoring heavily. So they're, they're ranked 11th in the AFL for points scored four. They were one and two after the first three weeks where they conceded 72, 135 and 117 in those those three games. And they played those games against the teams that at the end of round seven are ranked third, fifth and seventh for points four. We sit fourth. So, you know, we'll, we'll talk a lot about them and what we need to do to stop some of their things. But that we present them with a, a challenge that they haven't really had in terms of uh, you know restricting score uh, since round three. So yeah, that they'll have some headaches of their own that they'll be trying to walk, work through. Um, in terms of Port though, this year, mate, they, there's a few new faces there. Yeah, they've they've mostly kept their their core together, but they they have had a couple of begins. So obviously, a lot of the talk has been about Jason Horn Francis from North Melbourne and all the drama of getting him over there and then the ongoing uh, drama with uh, opposition fans booing him. Hopefully, Essendon fans remember what happened to Joe Watson uh, over in West Coast and the, the few Essendon fans that are going to be at the Adelaide Oval uh, refrain from doing the same. Uh, and they've also picked up Junior Rioli from West Coast. Uh, the main outs for them are Robbie Gray and Stephen Motlop, who retired, and then Carl Amon departed as a free agent to Hawthorne. And if you think about those losses, yes, uh, Gray and and Motlop could put on good performances and Gray was an, an out-out star of the competition, but their previous output from the last couple of years has, has not been great. So they're not huge losses there. Rioli feels a really important need for a small forward, um, but even he's been performing slightly under his career output that he, that he demonstrated at West Coast. So he's been, he's been partly influential, but he's not performing at the same level as that he did as his previous club. Um, 
Horn Francis, you know, mainly selected for the future in mind, but he's really started to impact games. It was really uh, apparent in the Saints game last week just how impactful he can be, and, and that's really important for them going forward. Um, as I said, overall, they're a side that's really kept their core together and had some young players improving. So uh, Williams, Lord, Tickle, and Burgoyne have all taken on more responsibility, and that's led to improving results for them. Yeah, it has. The, those younger players are having a bit of an impact. Ollie Lord was taken in the 2020 draft and debuted uh, two weeks ago. He's a 195-centimetre forward and can play at both ends. He's even done a little bit of ruck work for them. Tickle was a, a bit more of a mature age ruckman, although he's still only 22. He played the first two games of 2022 and then has come back into the side the last two weeks with uh, Scott Lysette out. Uh, the one that stood out to me, though, mate, is Dylan Williams. He was drafted back in 2019 and played the one game back in 2021 and then wasn't seen again until round four this year and, and has now played the last four games. He's a he's a left footer. He's a really good kick. He was originally drafted as a, a really dynamic you know, forward with a lot of real X factor, but he's been having a real impact for them playing off halfback and, and using his foot skills to to help move the ball forward for them. So he's uh, he's one that's really stood out to me. Yeah, and I I must admit I don't watch a whole lot of Port games. I did watch the the Saints game to make sure that I had something to talk about for this week. But I I do have a, a good friend Trent. Uh, hello, if you're listening, Trent this week, uh, who does support Port Adelaide. Uh, I will reveal that he was an Essendon supporter up until 1997 and he switched. So, uh, you know, don't know how much people will take into account his his views if he's prepared to switch away from the Bombers. But for him, the key differences that he's noticed this year are the improved output from small forwards. Uh, Rioli and McEntee, um have been really important there. Um, he also pointed out Jason Horn francis adding both pace and contested ball to the midfield. Um, the return to form of Alir Alir um, is someone I really rate. I was really surprised when the Swans let him go as easily as they did, and he's holding together their back line. And then just one of those intangibles, they've, they've held their nerve in close games, and it's something that uh, didn't happen for them last year. And it's just those small things, you know, turns a, a loss into a win, and, and suddenly you're got a positive win differential in the season, and, and you're starting to really build some momentum heading forward. Yeah, some good insight there, mate. Does that mean we're playing for the Trent Cup this week? Maybe we'll see. I, I, we're planning on watching the game together, so uh, it hasn't been hasn't been fun times the last few years. So hopefully, we'll get one back on him. No, fair enough. Well, on to to this week. It's a Sunday game, so we don't have the final teams out yet as we record this on Thursday night. But uh, how does it stand at the moment? Yeah, so a couple of big ins for Port Adelaide this week. They've brought back their captain Jonas, uh, Todd Marshall. Uh, is also back uh, from injury. And then they've also selected Francis Evans and Trent Dumont. Uh, big out for them this week, though, is Xavier Dersmer, who's got a knee injury. Um, last week's sub, Riley Bonner, is also on their extended bench. Now, there's some talk that Marshall is subject to passing a fitness test, but uh, I think all suggestions suggest he's, he's more than more likely than not to pass that. So expect that he'll line up there in the forward line. Yeah, I'd expect if Marshall plays that it means that Ollie Lord won't. They're, they're somewhat like for like. I'd imagine Jonas is the likely matchup for Stringer when he's forward. Uh, yeah, Marshall, you mentioned, Tickle holds his spot and then they've got Finlayson who who rucks and, and plays forward as well and then Dixon. So I think Porter clearly thinking they can stretch us for height. Jumon and Evans are named on an extended bench. So, yeah, we, we may or may not see them. But what have we done, mate, at, at our match committee meeting? Yeah, so Essendon have brought back Alwyn Davey, uh, Dyson Heppel after being managed last week, uh, Jai Menzi 
And Zach Reed's been named as well for potentially his first game of the year. Uh, Sam Durham is out with his suspension and last week's sub, Will Snelling, uh, you'll find on the extended bench. Now, Davey has actually been named on the ground. You'd imagine that therefore he's a straight in, or that hasn't always worked like that in the past. Uh, the extended bench is from Perkins, Phillips, Heppel, Hind, D'Ambrosio, Snelling, Menzi, and Reed. So given there's been no Jones selected, you imagine that Phillips keeps his place. Otherwise, then you're rucking Wiedemann as the relief for Draper and you, you generally then have no key target forward. Uh, Perkins is probably the obvious player from that list to be selected. Um, outside of that, I expect Heppel will be an in given that we're losing Durham and from the lineup, it's likely that Langford's going to have to play back, meaning we need wing cover. So that would be Heppel for me. Uh, and then you're probably looking at a seventh defender type, probably a choice between Hind and Ambrosio. Though, as you pointed out, uh, Port have gone for a, a tall forward line. I'd, I'd be very surprised if Reed did play, given he's had so li- little footy this year. But you know, maybe they're they're prepared to take that chance. Yeah, I, it would contradict uh, everything that we've heard out of the club this year if if Reed did play, um, including as as recently as as Brad Scott's post match press conference after the Cats game. So. I was surprised to see him name there. Uh, I'd, I'd be surprised if he plays, but, uh, you know, have they picked him just to play a little bit of funny buggers or, or yeah, I'm not too sure what they've done there. Um, I'm not going to try and guess how the team will end up. I, I get your point with Heppel and, and needing wing cover. We did use our mids as as wingers a fair bit last week as well. And, and you know, even in the second half, Durham spent a lot of time forward. We have picked an extra midfielder with, Hobbs still in the side and um, and obviously Zach came back last week. So, you know, we do bat a little bit deeper there. So we, we might see, you know, Perkins, Hobbs, Caldwell, um, even Shield and, and and Merritt at times play through a wing if, if Heppel's not there. So, yeah, I I really don't know, mate. Um, I, I think it suggests that Phillips will play. They won't want to have Weedham and go into the ruck and leave us without a key forward. But, but other than that, I think um, it's a, it's a real guessing game, but you know there's lots of options there, which is which is a good thing. Well, yeah, we've we've had plenty of experience picking from these extended benches when we've been doing these shows, and more often than not, all our well thought out ideas have, have shown to be wrong. So I think you've made the right call there, not to guess how the team's going to end up. Um, but look, let's let's quickly look at Port's last match. So a really good win for Port Adelaide, uh, 12-11-83. They defeated uh, St Kilda, who were the ladder leaders at the time, eleven ten seventy six. Um, St Kilda got out to a fast start, but then Port pegged them back to take the lead halfway through the second quarter. And they held on to it for most of the second half, although they never got the margin out beyond eight points during that time. Um, if you look at the look at the metrics, Saints are actually ahead in, in most of the ball winning ones like clearances, contested possession and marks. Uh, Port Adelaide did have more tackles, but that would be expected when you have less of the ball. It really came down to Port's efficiency inside 50. They entered their forward 55 times less than the Saints, but they went at 55% efficiency inside 50 as opposed to 46.5 for the Saints. That 55% for Port was 5% higher than their season average, which is pretty good against a, a defence that is really... Uh, you know, is probably the benchmark in the competition so far this year in the Saints. Um, they also took 11 marks to nine inside 50, and that gave them more effective shots on goal, which, again, is probably one of the key differences there. Um, goal scoring was shared for the power. So Rioli, Powell Pepper, Finlayson, and Dixon all kicked to a piece. Uh, Boke had three disposals, and Butters, Wines, and Horn Francis all had more than 25. And as we've sort of mentioned already, Horn Francis is having a real impact. I had 11 clearances and, and seven inside 50. So he's really showing why he went at number one. 
Yeah, I I was a little bit surprised uh, watching that game. I, I really expected St Kilda to get the job done, but as you touched on, Port were just much more efficient when they had the opportunity to go forward, and it helped that they were able to get really good ball use out of their clearance and and didn't Horn Francis play a real I was going to say breakout game, but but he's he's had really good games and really good moments in games already, but probably the one where he he sort of really put his teammates on his shoulders and tried to carry them. So, um, yeah, he he really stepped up when they needed him and and showed why he went with the first pick and, and why Port were really keen to get him across. Yeah. Well, look, let's start examining how we're going to challenge Port. And I think there's actually a fair few similarities between what Essendon is facing this week versus what they face against Geelong. So big key forwards against a small back line and a team that likes to score from stoppage. So, you know, I guess we've had a practice run against Geelong. How did we respond after last week to avoid a repeat of that result? Yeah, Porter, an interesting side. We we spoke about this uh, last week or the week before that, you know, turnovers, scores from turnovers is the primary score source in the AFL. Port actually get outscored from turnover. So even in their, their really good win against the Saints, they were outscored 44 to 54 from turnover. So it was it was clearances and, and stoppages that they they were able to get the ascendancy. They outscored St Kilda 37 to 21 from from those sources and it, and it could have been a lot more. They they kicked one goal four from center bounce. So so they they really could have uh hammered that home by a lot more. But over the season we've been outscored by four points a game from stoppages. So so we averaged 33 points a game for us from from stoppages and and that includes center center bounces in that, and we concede thirty seven point one points a game. But it is skewed a little bit by the last two weeks, and in fact, a lot from last week. We were outscored twenty four to thirty four against the Pies. So you know, eight point differential wasn't wasn't massive, although it was in the context of a thirty point loss. But we really got smashed there last week. It was thirty nine to sixty five last week. So you know, up until really that Geelong game, we were we were out. Scores from stoppage differential was a, a real strength of ours. And we still scored pretty well against Geelong. We scored that 39 points is above our season average. So it was it was really just that we allowed Geelong to to score too much. Uh but I think, you know, Horn Francis, we we've spoken about him already. He's the one that we're going to need to really watch at stoppages. He leads them both for center clearances and stoppage clearance. He's their number one player for score launches, which is a little bit unique. Normally, score launches, the number one player at most teams is their ruckman because you know their their ruckman's getting their hand on the ball at um, at hitouts and um, and and that starts the chain. You spoke about chains earlier, but yeah, Horn Francis is number one for them, um, and and he's had almost twice as many as their their next best. So Drew and and Houston are number two for Port. They've had twelve score launches this season. Horn Francis has had 21, and, and that puts him fifth in the AFL. And the only other midfielder ahead of him is is Clayton Oliver. The rest are all, all Ruckman. So I'd be making sure that Setterfield or Cordwell is always in that midfield and that they're, they've got the defensive role on, on Horn Francis. I, I worry a little bit about Setterfield's speed off the mark. You know, Setterfield isn't necessarily slow once he gets into a gallop, but but off the mark, Horn Francis is going to really have him. Um, but then I also worry a little bit Caldwell size. Horn Francis is 185 centimetres, so he, he pips Caldwell by only two centimetres, but he's got almost 20 kilos on him. He's a really big and powerful player, Jason Horse, Horn Francis. So I think we, 
we need to have at least one of those two just just for balance I think to make sure that we limit his clear and effectiveness and and that we can really try and restrict his clean ball use to their key forwards the other one though I'd, I'd keep your eye on William Drew he's a he's a player we spoke about last year and goes under the radar a little bit because they do have you know a, a Brownlow medalist in Ollie Wines Travis spoke in their midfield and who's you know been doing it for a long time Drew sort of sneaks under a little bit he's their number one tackler he, he does a little bit of the sort of work that we see Setterfield do. Um, and he also helps distribute the ball to the likes of Rosie and Butters, who can be really dangerous on the outside. So, you know, I think we've just got to be mindful that they do have a really balanced midfield that that have players that play multiple roles. And, and Drew's one that, along with Horn Francis, we're just going to need to be mindful of. Yeah. Well, what about at either end of the ground then? Yeah, I've already touched on it a couple of times. I really like the move of Langford to a wing in the second half last week and then dropping back in the hole. I think he and, and Heppel, if Heppel does play, are going to have to do something similar, either playing at halfback or coming back from a wing to help out whoever our key defenders end up being because uh, they are going to have their hands full. You would imagine Zerk Thatcher is going to get that Dixon matchup, but that still leaves the likes of Finlayson and... Um, and Marshall uh, to have to deal with. So, yeah, I, I think Langford and Heppel, if he plays, play really important roles in trying to clog up space and, and make it harder for those guys to to get separation from our defenders. At the other end of the ground, Alir Alir, you've touched on him. Um, he's ranked number three in the AFL for for intercept marks. So we're going to have to make sure that we uh, our entries avoid him as much as possible play through his man, but then also Phillips and Draper have a big role, assuming they both play in, in how that plays out. If they can push deep and drag him back, um, you know, like we saw against Melbourne and, and the likes, then that will create a lot of extra space for other forwards to walk, uh, work into. So I think, you know, th- those two rucks, you know, when when they're playing in the ruck and, and forward have a, a big role to say in that. And then the other one, mate, is, is Dan Houston. He's one that, you know, he's he's kind of like that Nick Dacos. He, he's not at that level, but he is having a really good season. He sets up a lot of their drive from halfback, and, and we need to make sure he's not getting easy ball off the back of stoppage and, and through handball chains. So I think, you know, we've, we've spoken already how, how difficult it can be to get the right matchup that you want in your own forward line. So I don't think it's a case of sending anyone specifically to him, but he's also one that we don't want to allow to be a, a, a spare man at a stoppage. Yeah, well, look, we, we saw what happened when, when Nick Dacos, you know, had a big impact against Collingwood. You know, I guess how do we how do we manage Houston? I, I imagine he's probably easier to to take out of a game than, than someone like a Dacos. But again, do you do you rob yourself of forward ability by playing a stopper in, in that position? It, it's it's one of those things you have to balance up uh when you're deciding how you want to approach the game. Yeah, that's right. I, I don't. He doesn't have the running power of, of Dacos. He doesn't have the strings to his bow where he can go into the midfield or or you know go and play forward and, and those kind of things. But like Dacos, he can get ball off the back of stoppage and, and set up their chain. So it, we just need to make sure that we're not giving him easy opportunities to do that by just making sure that he's got body contact at at those sort of you know um, stoppages and the like. Yeah. Well, look, our final thought. A game we always end with a final thought, and you know, I'm another thing I'm obsessed about with Port Adelaide is the fact that uh, in all the history of trading between Essendon and Port Adelaide, there's never been a player go from Port Adelaide to Essendon, no matter how hard 
uh, Adrian Dodoro tried to get Ollie Wines across. Um, so, in the spirit of that, if uh, one you could trade for one current Port player to play for Essendon, who would it be? Yeah, I think Will Snelling's the only one, isn't he, that that's played for Port and then come to Essendon. But of course, he was a mid-season draft pick and not a trade. Oh. Uh, I would say if we were talking long term, I would I would say Horn Francis. I think he's going to be a really really special player. But if we were talking for this week to to um, help interrupt um, or to help us win a game, then then I'd be taking a Lee earlier to to you know help bolster our defence, give us another tool back there, and and you know get in front of Charlie Dixon. What about you? Uh, well, I, I wouldn't mind another tall forward. I think uh, probably a Todd Marshall again, thinking longer term. I think he's he's got a real promise and, and future in the game. And obviously he's set up to take over for as the number one man for them from Dixon. So the key forwards are, are pretty hard to to find. And I think he, he'd be a good fit. Yeah, good shout. All right, well, look, that'll wrap us up for tonight's show. Uh, just to let everyone know that May's bonus episode is going to be recorded this coming week. Uh, it'll be out Tuesday night for patrons uh, and then a week later on the regular feed. So if you do want to get access to that early, you can sign up to the Patreon. And again, the link will be in the description for this episode. Uh, any final words from you, Jono? No, a bit of a marathon tonight, mate. So if you're still listening at this point in the show, congratulations on getting through it and, and thank you for, for staying with us. Uh, thanks again to everyone for all of their support and, and messages throughout the week. It's uh, it's yeah, it's a lot of fun and, and you know every week we we get really excited to put this together. So uh, yeah, thanks for everyone once again for their support. Awesome, well said. Uh, thanks everyone and go Dons. Dustin Fletcher leading late to the ball. Good confident stuff. Not such a great placement. Rioli did okay and might get a reward Ooh. here. Matty Lloyd has absolutely crunched Chad Corns, who, like uh, Mike Tyson, is picking himself up very slowly. Kingsley comes away with it. In fact, both of them, Tim, are feeling the effects of that hit. It was very fair. It was just a classic old hip and shoulder.